Hello, I'm Mark Blythe, Director of the Rhodes Centre for International Economics and Finance here at Brown University. We're a partner with the Financial Times on this podcast. Right now, Brendan Greeley, your regular host from the FT, is out sick, so I'm going to set up this week's conversation instead. When people in the United States talk about immigration to each other, they usually refer to the past. America is a nation of immigrants, always has been, that sort of thing. As you can hear from my voice, I'm one of them. Immigrants have indeed come to this country in waves. A wave of immigrants came from European countries in the late 19th century, and we're currently at the crest of another wave. So the argument in America today goes something like this. On the one hand, you get some people saying, this is exactly like when my great-grandfather came over from Scotland. And you have others who say, this is exactly not at all like when your grandfather came over from Scotland. This week, we talked to two academics who've taken a longer view of immigration. Leah Bustan at Princeton wrote Competition in the Promised Land about the great black migration north in the United States. More recently, she's focused on how to measure assimilation after the last wave of immigration. Maggie Peters is at the UCLA. She just finished a book called Trading Barriers. She looks at immigration and outsourcing as part of the same continuum. We started by digging in on the question of assimilation, which has always seemed slippery, because you can accuse a group of failing to assimilate, but how do you even measure what assimilation is in the first place? Here's Leah. Well, I think when economists talk about assimilation, they've usually meant only one thing, which is immigrants moving up the occupational ladder and moving into the middle class. When the typical person on the street thinks about assimilation, they tend to think more about cultural assimilation, about attitudes and behaviors and norms that look like the behaviors of the native-born. And so that can be pretty challenging to measure and especially challenging to measure over time. So we really don't have a good sense of how cultural assimilation might have changed from the last great wave of migration to today. Um, one thing that I've been working on with my collaborators, Ron Abramitsky and Katherine Erickson, is thinking about using the names that immigrants give to their kids as one window into cultural assimilation. So when you have an, an immigrant mom and she has a kid after a year or two in the U.S., she may not know very much about U.S. culture. She may not feel connected to U.S. culture. What happens after five or six years um, when she learns more, when she might change her attitudes? And you might pick up some clues about assimilation from the names that immigrant parents choose for their kids. Um, it turns out that names have a lot of cultural content. So some names tend to be given by native-born families and some by immigrant families. Um, and you can pick that out in the data. And what we're able to see is a pattern of assimilation in the past and a pattern of assimilation today. And what really shocked us and jumped out of the data is how similar those patterns look. Every year that goes by, immigrant families are choosing names that look more and more like the names that native-born families would pick. Um, and they don't completely close the naming gap over time, but they get pretty close. Um, and they get pretty close to the same degree in the past and today. So, you know, if you actually try to take a look at and try to define carefully this concept of assimilation, it really changes what we've thought about this process. So Northern Europe, Southern Europe, Latin America, Asia, each wave has had the same generational pattern of, of, of name diffusion, I guess. Even more so, some of the groups that people will point to as being slowest to assimilate, so that would be like the Italians um, in the past and the Mexicans today, um, actually assimilate by this measure 
most rapidly. And so they do start out with larger naming gaps, but they close those gaps more quickly. And one thing that's interesting about names is that they're free. So some of the other ways to assimilate, you know, maybe you move into a neighborhood that's outside of the immigrant enclave, that's mixed. Maybe you marry a native-born spouse. Um, Those actions require resources, but choosing a name is something you can do without a cost and just gives you a sense of what the attitudes are on the parent side. Uh, And so the groups that we've thought about as slowest to assimilate by this measure actually look most rapid. Maggie, you've got this great quote uh, in the first chapter of your book of the 19th century governing attitude towards immigration or towards assimilation, which is uh, to govern is to populate. I I found that fascinating because that's just not the way we think about it at all right now. I can't imagine any politician saying to govern is to populate on any part of the spectrum in the U.S. at least. Um, Were the incentives different in the 19th century or early 20th century so that the concept of assimilation that we talk about now didn't even necessarily have to matter? I would say yes and no. So to some extent, the settler nation, so that quote comes from an Argentinian um, politician who was really worried that Argentina just didn't have enough people to really produce anything. And so if you look back, you know, 150 years ago, when we were opening up the West, or if Canada was opening up the West, um, Australia, all those places just needed more people. Um, we had we needed more labor for everything we produced. Everything we produced took a lot more people to do it. And so we just needed more people to help grow the economy and to actually like create a state. And in the case of places like Argentina and even in Canada, there were all these great quotes of the Canadian government being really worried that U.S. was going to take over the western part of Canada unless they got enough people over into the western part of Canada to say, like, no, this is Canadian land. Um, In places where you didn't have people and you were having contestation over the land, you just needed more people. Um, So there was just the sense that we needed more workers, we needed more people to come and help, you know, conquer the West um, and and control territory. But why I think it wasn't that different was that, you know, every single argument that comes up about uh, immigrants and how they don't assimilate or all the problems that they face has been just repeated over time. So, you know, all of the rhetoric about immigrants today, you know, not sending their best. I mean, I'm the product of Irish immigrants. And so anybody who can tell you who was Irish was like, yeah, they didn't really like us. There were all those signs that say, you know, no Irish need apply. And so there were still the same concerns going back in time that various groups were not going to assimilate, um, who were not part of American values, didn't hold democratic values. So there are big concerns about German immigrants who were too authoritarian um, and uh, would never learn democracy because they'd come from authoritarian states. And also there were all these concerns because the Germans refused to learn English in a lot of places in the Midwest. They would send their kids to German-speaking schools. And so you've heard the same sort of rhetoric about the problems of assimilation. So even when you look back at the historical records, and I've looked back at a lot of these archives of these various industry groups, like the textile manufacturers, one of the interesting things is they're like, oh, we need workers. But then they they will go on and say sort of all sorts of nasty things that no modern you know, politician would ever say about immigrants and go out and say all these things. But, oh, we need them here because we need them to work for us. Is the level of nativism in America a constant 
or does it wax and wane with, I don't know, economic growth? Or, or can we just assume that a certain percentage is going to be a problem? You know, my assumption is, and we don't have enough, we don't have like long run you know, political opinion data to actually get at this. But my my feeling is from looking at the data is that there's always sort of this group, some subset of the population that is not actually that large of a set of the population who doesn't like immigration. And I think you have moments where you have um, either economic downturns or greater um, economic inequality or otherwise have other issues that push immigration to the fore. Maybe you have a politician who thinks like, oh, this is a good issue to run on. And so I think there's always sort of a group that doesn't like immigration, but they don't always get activated or immigration doesn't become a major issue for them a lot of the time. I'll just put out a teaser for some new work that Ron and I are doing um, where we're trying to measure that exact uh, question about um, has nativism been a constant or has it been rising and falling? And in order to do that, we needed a really long-run series of speech. You need to hear what people are saying over a very long time. And the best set of texts we have for that is the congressional record. Um, so we get to hear what Congress people are saying on the floor. Um, and then you can take a look at the terms that are being used to describe Im- immigrants. Um, and Oftentimes, those terms might not be clear to the naked eye, but when you have a lot of underlying data and uh, you have uh, the computing power, you can pull out some trends. Um, And so, for example, the verbs that people use to um, talk about immigrants, are those the verbs that are often used to describe animals or insects, like infestation, um, or are those verbs that are often associated with human action? I mean, sometimes you can see subtle dehumanization in the word choices um, that may not even be apparent to the speaker. Um, So we're working on that now. Um, That's why I'm saying it's only a teaser and we don't have the answer. Um, But I think these are exactly the right questions. And um, we can't go on the basis of assumption. We have to look at all of them with the data that we have. I'll show my hand here. The reason I wanted to ask that question is that if ever there were a time when there was economic desperation in America, um, it would have been in 2008, 2009. Um, and if that is something that changes uh, nativist sentiment, then then you know it's possible that we could see some very clear results now. Well, we don't see it in the polling data. That's very clear. I mean, if you look at the Gallup polling uh, for questions like, do immigrants contribute to the United States? It's a very broad question, and people interpret it as they will. But that question has been asked since the 1960s. And actually, today, um, we're at the highest levels of poll responders saying, yes, we think immigrants do contribute to uh, U.S. society. And then when there's specific questions asked about, should we build a wall? Um, Should we make this modification or that modification to immigration policy? Uh, You do see a good third of the population in favor of restriction. Uh, But that number hasn't been growing. Maggie, go ahead. Judy Goldstein and I did some work where we followed people over the course of the Great Recession. We kind of got lucky in that we started polling them in 2007 on their immigration and trade attitudes. And then we followed up continually in 08, 9, 10, and then in 2012. And what was really interesting was even at the depths of the recession, so in 09, 10, you didn't see a huge amount of movement 
on immigration attitudes. They moved a little bit. They moved slightly more negative, but not very far. And actually what moved more was not what we typically think about in terms of the low skill measure, but it was really, there was a lot more action going on in support for high skill immigration and a bigger decrease in support for high skill immigration during that time period. But again, it wasn't a huge amount of movement. So this idea that, oh, it's just economic decline. It's sort of like a mechanistic operation where it then leads to more nativism just doesn't seem to hold. It really looks like you have to have on the on the sort of supply side, you have to have politicians who think that this is a good issue for them to use. Mark, uh, you know, I thought there was something interesting that Leah brought up, which is um, that that often the way economists study assimilation is using metric that they think about, which is wages. Um, are, are economists and political scientists talking past each other on this subject? I don't think they do. I think Maggie's work is an example of how they're not talking past each other. I mean, there's lots of different measures one can use. Some are more tractable than others. Um, to me, the, the interesting question I want to get into, given the conversation, is this. Are we talking about your grandma's immigration? That is to say, 19th century immigration, you have high capital mobility, the first great globalization. But the key thing is labor can also move. And there's a demand side for this, which is firms want labor to basically move to these places and governments want people and so on and so forth. We seem to be in a quite different world in terms of the demand side of this. But we also seem to be in a different world in the sense that the people who are coming seem to be much more bifurcated. That is to say images of migrant caravans, Syrian refugees, and then high-tech workers from India basically pricing out high-tech natives. So let's can we speak to basically those trends? We don't have the same flows. We don't have the same supply and demand factors. What's changed if ultimately our nativism stays the same? Maggie, this is, goes to the heart of the thesis of your book. Can, can we talk about this question of demand for cheap labor in the United States and how that's changed? Yeah. So if you think about the 19th century, as I mentioned before, businesses just needed a lot more labor and they needed it where they were. It was much harder to trade most goods. Um, trade was still relatively expensive, although it was getting cheaper. You really couldn't move your production far away from your headquarters because we just didn't have the technology or the managerial capability to really control production elsewhere. So you couldn't be Apple sitting in Cupertino and have your plant in China because it would have taken too long to talk to your plant operations. Uh, folks. And so what you had then was this huge demand from the business community, from producers for labor. And we start to see this change at the end of the 19th century, early 20th century as trade. You have the steamship, you have revolutions in communication that start allowing you to have uh, your production plants further away and allowed you to trade goods for larger distances. And so it becomes easier and easier. And especially, you know, after World War II, it becomes quite easy then to move your factory overseas um, and do a lot of production overseas. And what was the sort of production that tended to move first was the stuff that really needed the low-skill labor. Um, and these were the same firms that were typically the ones who were using immigrant labor. So as you saw that switch, as either these firms in like places like the US or Europe closed down because they were no longer competitive, first with places like Japan and Taiwan and now China, or as they decided to move production overseas, they just kind of stopped caring about immigration at home. Um, which left then, as I argue, it left the field open for these more anti-immigrant groups to have more say in policy. And there was a real mechanism there. They didn't just stop caring. They stopped lobbying. Right. 
And so you see this in the U.S. where we, we think of lobbying happening a lot. But even in European countries where we don't think about lobbying as so much or the Europeans don't think that businesses lobby so much, they actually have much more formal channels to usually uh, interact with uh, policymakers. Um, but there, too, we see the same trends where businesses just don't lobby on these issues so much. Now, there's sort of exceptions to this, and this gets at like how globalization is different today in that the high-skill industries, the tech industries, um, still find it very useful to have people together in one place for the most part and to have all the computer scientists together in Palo Alto, in Seattle, in Los Angeles, in Vancouver, wherever, together, working together on these problems. And so you still have this demand uh, from the high-tech side for a lot of labor, And then on the low end side, you still have a lot of industries that are not that mobile. So here in California, I always think about agriculture um, that needs a lot of labor, our kind of agriculture in California, not necessarily Midwestern agriculture, um, and also services that just just can't move. And so that's where you still see the firm level demand, which then speaks to like the kind of people who come and how it seems bifurcated in that we have very high skill people who come to take the jobs at Microsoft or Apple and Google. And then you need people to come and pick strawberries in the field. I quickly called out Midwestern agriculture just because the difference there is that in the Midwest, you can grow everything and with machines, basically, and you need very little labor. And that has been true for almost 100 years. And so the other aspect that has happened as well is thinking about automation, is if you can take over um, a job with a machine rather than with a person, that's also helped this trend of businesses um, lobbying less for immigration because they just decide, you know, it's cheaper, it's easier to use a machine. And there's just a couple industries that are left that really find it, t- it too difficult to use a machine for a lot of their labor. I wanted to thank Maggie for bringing up Midwestern agriculture. I didn't expect it to come up today, but I'm glad it did. Um, I've been working recently on what happened to the U.S. economy after the border became substantially restricted in the 1920s. And we found an interesting divide between urban and rural areas. So in rural areas, um, especially those areas that had been attracting a lot of immigrants before the border closure, once those immigrants stop coming, we also see the native-born residents of those areas leaving, which is really quite the opposite of what you would think if, oh, now that immigrants are not coming and taking our jobs, we can stay put. Maybe even new native-born workers would move in. And for especially the Midwest and especially in the rural areas, it's the opposite. And so if you drill down a little further, it seems like what was going on there is that there was a switch away from labor-intensive crops towards uh, crops that were easily grown um, in a more automated fashion, um, as well as capital investment in the crops that were in place uh, to mechanize. And so when the labor force is not there, the switch is not to native workers, but to machines. And when we're looking at urban areas at the time, it was really quite different um, because the factory setting at that at that point still did require a lot of low-skilled workers. So when immigrants stopped coming in the 1920s to cities, uh, what we're seeing is a lot of replacement workers coming in, but not the replacement workers that policymakers at the time had in mind. It's actually primarily uh, rural black migrants from sharecropping uh, settings in the South moving into cities for the first time, as well as 
Mexican migrants who were not restricted by the 1920s quotas uh, moving into factories. Um, so the policymakers who are saying we need to shut the border because native-born white working class are losing out on jobs in a competition with Italians and Poles and so on, um, were right that there was some displacement going on, but they were wrong in terms of who was going to end up uh, taking those jobs. Like so much, it seems that automation is the sort of the hidden ghost in the story of so much we're interested in. I'd like to turn the conversation towards two things, the urban environment and to wages. So I wonder to what extent the stories that both of you are telling us about immigration apply to contemporary cities. So there's a book which has been uh, animating the Yellow Jackets movement in France by a guy called Christophe Goyer called The Twilight of the Elites. And the basic thesis is that the uh, working classes of Paris have been evacuated from the cities. Income and wealth inequality has pushed up real estate prices. The shift to a skills, knowledge-based economy has benefited and pushed that trend even further. So there's a small elite at the top that basically has done very well, and they need kind of disposable immigrant labor, and therefore they're very pro-immigration. And this squeezes out the space available for native workers. Now, you can see how that argument can be easily weaponized by politicians. So my first question is, is there anything in that type of argument about how these dynamics play out in the city, given the shift to knowledge-intensive skills. And the second one to lay in particular is, you've written about how wages operated and wage displacement and competition between workers played out in the 19th century. Well, how different is that today? So those two things on the table, if we can. I will start with thinking about what happened in Miami with the Mariel Boatlift. And this is the one immigration event that's been uh, studied to death by economists for over 20 years. And what seems to be emerging consensus, but I'll, I'll get in trouble if I, I you know. Yeah, don't uh, canonize it. But exactly. You can go for it, right? Exactly. Um, so, what, what seems to be going on is that during the Mariel Boatlift, uh, there were 125,000 uh, Cuban migrants who arrived in the Miami labor force, and that increased the labor force overnight by 7%. So, it's a huge immigration change. Um, and there seems to not be a large effect on the wages of the native born. So then the interesting question is, well, what else adjusted? Because the simple model tells you that if you have more workers and the firms are all the same, then wages should go down. But it seems like something else was changing. And one thing that's intriguing um, that was changing was automation and the use of computers. Um, so this was in the early 1980s. And it was the beginning of the use of computerization, not just uh, for white-collar work, uh, sitting at a desk and working on a personal computer, but also in the factory and also in a retail setting, you know, so using a computer to ring up um, purchases at a store. And it looks like the firms in Miami were just a bit slower to adopt that type of automation relative to comparison cities that didn't receive a big inflow of low-skilled workers. So it suggests that if we don't have immigrants, we're not necessarily going to just employ similar native-born workers, but maybe firms are going to invest in forms of capital that can do the same jobs that workers can do. It's also that you know, businesses have lots of choices. So like Leah mentioned, they could you know use capital, figure out some sort of automation, or depending on what it is, they could also just move. They can move their production somewhere else where they can get the labor that they need. So it's not clear necessarily that um, 
if you get rid of immigrants, that natives are automatically going to, that they're going to be more jobs that natives are going to take. Or, you know, it's also not clear that those are the types of jobs that natives do want to take. So I look back, you know, Alabama had their self-deportation law, and they thought, oh, okay, if lots of people leave, which it does look like lots of people left Alabama, Native workers will have way more job opportunities, and something like farms will start paying people more to come and work on the farms. And the farms did offer more money, but people didn't come and work at them. So it's not clear that it just means that you know, the price of some goods would go up because there just wouldn't be workers in it. And we'd all just end up sort of consuming different stuff or not consuming as many services because immigrants weren't providing them. It's not clear to me that um, Native workers would would come and and take the place in a lot of the job categories that uh, immigrants are doing right now. For either of you, is there a simple answer or a simple response to the statement immigration drives down native wages? Or is it something that we're still studying and we can't give a simple answer to? I don't think there's a simple answer because it's going to depend on how easy it is for firms to leave the area, how easy it is for firms to invest in computerization or other forms of automation. And so if you tie the hands of firms, then you're more likely to see wages fall. But if you allow there to be other responses, very quickly, you can see no effect. Maggie, do you have a straightforward answer? Sorry, I didn't mean to imply that Leah's was not straightforward. <laughs> but I mean, this is this is a this is a question that one hears at least five times a day on television in America. So, is there an answer? It depends a little bit on the structure of the economy as well, and like what kind of work are we doing? Um, so, Giovanni Perry has some nice work um, showing that immigrants are often complements to natives. So, if you think about you know, any sort of business, you're going to have a certain set of things that don't need a lot of country-specific skills, don't need a lot of language, are relatively routine, um, that typically immigrants go into, and then natives do the more country-specific skill tasks. So I always use the example of a restaurant, where if you're a new immigrant who doesn't really know English and doesn't know U.S. culture very well, it would be really hard for you to be a waiter. But it's pretty easy for you to work in the back of the house on the line cooking or doing a dishwasher. And that's actually what you see in a lot of kitchens. But what that means is that the native labor has been deployed uh, more strategically in the setting as the waiters and that overall the production is cheaper. And so we all go out to eat a lot more, which many of us think is a good thing. So you have this sort of complementarity that can go on in places like the United States, um, which means that in many ways uh, native workers are used more productively and typically move up. Um, There's some nice studies from Norway and elsewhere that show they move up frequently. On the flip side, if you look at places where the economy is still really dependent on a lot of manual labor or routine tasks, um, you can have some displacement. So there's some studies out of Turkey right now that show in the informal economy set where it's really easy for Syrians to compete with Turkish workers that there have been some employment effects. Basically, people have dropped out of the labor market, but there hasn't really been wage effects. But that's only in that informal economy in a developing country, which is not what we are in the US or in Europe. I also wonder about wages and conditions for undocumented immigrants, which is that it's one way of thinking about sort of having it be convenient to a lot of industries that we have a lot of undocumented workers in America means that uh, you've just got 
better bargaining power uh, against your labor force. You can impose bad conditions on them. You can drop wages. And when you do that, you do that for everybody. So when we talk about immigration, do we need to make a distinction between what documented uh, immigrants do to wages and what undocumented immigrants do to wages? Well, I think economists are just starting to discover some of the answers on that question. It's very interesting. Actually, I have a student here um, who's working on this for her dissertation, and she's looking at the DACA program, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, that was passed by executive order in, in 2012. Um, so in that case, you have uh, close to a million people who were already resident in the U.S., and many were already in the labor force, and they suddenly had work permits. Um, so that might increase their bargaining power. But it also might make them more likely, for example, to stay in high school or to go to college because they can envision a future in a higher status occupation. So it's really ambiguous what would happen then in the labor force to native-born workers when uh, you have a set of people who are living in the U.S. already and now become regularized and get documents. And so, so far, um, what she's finding is um, very little effect on uh, the native-born or on immigrant workers um, who are not eligible for DACA. And it could be because these two forces are going in uh, two opposite directions. Um, in one case, maybe uh, shifting some demand towards native-born workers because uh, now suddenly immigrants are bargaining a bit harder, and that encourages firms to employ native-born workers instead. But on the other side, maybe pulling some immigrants out of the labor force into training or schooling opportunities. I'm thinking of industries like uh, slaughterhouses, food processing is probably a better, broader term, um, where there was a heavy percentage of undocumented immigrants working and the conditions were pretty abysmal. And when the Obama administration and the Trump administration uh, started cracking down on that, um, they moved very quickly to refugees. So the industry itself rests on the assumption that you have to have terrible conditions for workers or else the industry doesn't function. I'm not sure how to turn that into a question, but <laughs> I guess the, the question is, um, will the very structure of some industries have to change um, if there's no access to undocumented workers? Some yes, some no. So I believe it's the case that most undocumented workers either have an individual taxpayer number or are using somebody else's social security number, which means that typically then the employers are not paying below minimum wages because they actually their wage data is actually being collected through the tax system. And so I think in a lot of cases, employers maybe don't even know that somebody is undocumented and so are treating them normally. Now, that said, there are industries that seem to be relying on undocumented workers quite a bit. So I think, you know, I've, I've spent a fair amount of time with the agricultural associations out here in California doing research. And it's pretty clear that at least 70% of the workers on California farms are undocumented. Um, and there are labor abuses that go on. Um, but part of it is through this weird sort of contracting relationship where the farmer doesn't actually employ the workers. Um, but I'm not sure if we just took away the undocumented workers, what would change is that we wouldn't have California agriculture. Most of those farmers are not competitive. Most of their crops right now can't be picked with any sort of machine. And so they would 
probably go under um, or move. Like many of them have actually started moving more and more of their production, so to speak, to places like Mexico. So it would rapidly restructure that industry, um, but in a way we might not like. You know, whenever I hear these arguments about, you know, undocumented workers leading to low labor standards, like the simplest solution would be to provide them with legal status where it and have a status where it's not dependent on employers, where you see a lot of the worst labor abuses against immigrants in places like the Persian Gulf or Singapore are places where the worker is tied to an employer. If you break that tie, it means that the worker's a lot more free to talk about labor abuses and to bring them up as a problem. So, you know, we could get rid of all the undocumented workers in the uh, slaughterhouse industry or food processing. But I don't know that those jobs necessarily will be taken by Americans. I don't know that those jobs could be taken necessarily by machines right now. So what I think that means is that, that those factories just move to places like Mexico, where you could still easily ship the product back to the United States quite quickly, where we would, as the U.S., we would have basically no control over health and safety standards. Yeah, an interesting case in history of something like that um, happening was the ending of the Bracero program. And that happened in, in 1965, where there had been a guest worker program with Mexico for 20 years, um, and around half a million guest workers were arriving each year, mostly to work in agriculture. And when that program ended, rather than changing native-born employment in agriculture or increasing the wages of the native-born in the agricultural sector, um, there was simply a shift um, to mechanization and um, to crops that could be easily harvested with by machine. And at this point, and that was you know primarily in California, but other states, I think that the agricultural sector is already maxed out on that type of adjustment. Sort of as Maggie was saying, probably what would happen is not a shift towards mechanization because we've already gone as far as we can in that direction. So probably, again, like she's saying, a shift abroad. Yeah, and that's when you saw when the Bracero program ended. In part, it ended due to mechanization because major supporters were the cotton industry in Texas and California. And once there was the mechanical cotton picker, they didn't need as many workers and stopped lobbying as much for the Bracero program to stay in existence. But you did see those industries that could mechanize, further mechanized. Otherwise, that's when you start first seeing uh, American producers, like the big farmers, like your Driscolls and those sorts of big names, start looking towards Mexico. At the time, they couldn't buy a lot of land in Mexico, but started to think about, you know, can we buy land in Mexico? And once Mexican reforms happened in the 90s, you saw large numbers of American producers buying farmland and doing more production in Mexico because that's where they could get the cheap labor. So we've spoken about automation and we've spoken a lot about wages. I want to change the conversation a little bit to public goods and also take it out of the United States. So we're all familiar with the rise of the AFD, the alternative for Deutschland. And one of the interesting things about uh, their rise is that they're most popular in places that are populated by old people where there are no immigrants. Meanwhile, in parts of Germany where they actually dealt with large numbers of immigrants in the past few years, they have practically no support. One of the sort of the common sense observations in Germany that you'll hear about this is, well, of course, that makes sense. 
up in the north and the east, where basically you had the old East Germany. Everyone's been living on public handouts and public goods for a long time, and they're a direct threat. So they feel that these immigrants are going to come in for these residualized public goods that they're already struggling to uh, get their share of. Meanwhile, in the rich parts of the south, the migrants that they're used to are people whose consumption of public goods do not detract from the locals and the natives. So there's a very different reaction, even though the presence of natives doesn't seem to be the critical variable. Is there anything in that type of story? That is to say that we shouldn't just focus on wages, we should focus on the differential consumption of public goods and how they're actually not completely excludable and not non-rival in the way that we tend to think. I would say in the case of Germany, you kind of have like a short-term, long-term problem because the vast wave of people who have come in the last couple of years are refugees who don't speak German. And so you at least have this short-term problem of for these folks to enter the labor market, you got to get them speaking German. Um, And that means that they need to be going to school. And quite frequently what happens is they get supported while they're in school. But the long-term effects might be quite different because most of these folks are quite young and they want a job. They're going to work for a long time and they're going to contribute much more to the fiscal um, treasury in, in Germany. Now, to go back to the wanting to work um, with some co-authors, Alicia Holland, who's at Princeton, and Tanya Sanchez, who's at Yale, we did this big survey of um, Syrian and Iraqi who were living in Turkey, Jordan, Syria, and Iraq in 2016. And then we followed up with some focus groups um, in Istanbul in 2017. And what was really interesting to us is, you know, you think about a refugee population, there are populations who've lost everything, they might have health issues um, due to the violence that had occurred in Syria and Iraq during the time. And yet the number one thing they wanted was a job. And so when you ask them sort of these um, questions that we have to try and tease out why people like one thing versus another, the number one thing that popped about why they wanted to go to places like Germany or Sweden is because that's where they figured they could get a job. Um, And when you talk to them in these focus groups, they talked about how living on the dole, using welfare was degrading to them and that they just wanted work. They just wanted to rebuild their lives. They wanted that sense of dignity that comes with work. So this idea that immigrants are coming in specifically for the welfare system in Europe um, just isn't true and isn't really borne out by a lot of data or by what the immigrants say themselves. I'm going to close this out with the same question uh, to both Leah and Maggie, which is, uh, I wrote an article uh, three or four years ago that I regret now. Um, And it was just a very simple article at the start of the migration into Germany, where I pointed out that they have an aging workforce. They need younger workers. Here's a supply. Done. It's obviously not that simple. But that is a problem that we have in the U.S. as well. We have an aging workforce. There is a ready supply of younger workers who will pay into Social Security and solve all number of macroeconomic problems that we have in the U.S. But it's not that simple. So for both of you, if we're going to make this point, we do need younger workers. What do we have to be aware of if we're going to positively advocate for that solution? What are the complications? What are the what are the policy prescriptions to be aware of? As we make this point, America needs young workers. Well, I think we can't assume that immigrants are going to start to look like the native born either in behavior or in earnings within the first generation. Um, So what we find for both the past and the present is that 
immigrant groups that start out and arrive in the U.S. earning less than the native-born do catch up to a certain extent, but they don't close the gap within one generation. But yet, if you follow on to the second generation and you look at the kids, by the second generation, those gaps have been erased. And that's true when we looked at 1850 to 1880 immigrants. It's true when we looked at 1910 immigrants whose kids were in the labor force in the 1940s. And it's true today if you look at immigrants who came in 1980 and then their kids are in the labor force now. So I think we need to give immigrants some time and acknowledge that if we do want immigrants they do contribute to the economy as younger workers and so on. We can see that adjustment to the U.S. takes time, but it happens. Maggie? Yeah. What I would add on to that, because I think those are all great points, is that our reaction to immigrants also affects their likelihood of integrating um, into our society. So there's a lot of work in sociology and also in political science on this. When immigrants are discriminated against or any group are discriminated against, frequently they can adopt those characteristics of the negative stereotype as sort of like, you know, you think I'm this terrible person, so I'm going to act that way. Or I will never make it into mainstream, in this case in America, white society or mainstream German society or Swedish society, so why bother trying? And so when natives adapt that attitude, you're more likely to get worse outcomes in terms of integration. So to some extent, we need to work on ourselves and thinking about, do we actually want the people? And the other thing to think about is not all immigrants, but a lot of immigrants do want to go home. They want to come for a while. They want to make money. But they still have that same attachment to home as everybody else does. And so if we make it easier for people to come and go a little bit, that people might actually maintain their attachments to home better and might end up returning home, which is usually good for the home society as well. And then finally, we should all remember, you know, none of these issues are new. And it's not like this is the first time we've ever dealt with them. As we've been talking about today, you know, all these same arguments about Migrants were used on all the different groups in the past, and yet those are all groups that have made the U.S. stronger today and and made U.S. culture what it is. And so I, I think we can just also think about those beneficial contributions beyond just like, oh, here are a bunch of workers, that they actually bring all sorts of other benefits um, to the country. Maggie Peters, Leah Platt-Bustan, thank you both so much. Thank you. Thanks. Alpha Chat is produced by Dan Richards at the Rhodes Centre for International Economics and Finance and Amy Keane from the Financial Times. Email us at alphachat at ft.com for any reason at all. Well, actually, no, not for any reason at all. For things relevant to the podcast, like, is it good? Do you enjoy it? What do you like? What you don't like? For my part, I do this because I learn a ton from doing so. I hope that you do too. And I also hope that Brendan gets better soon. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. 
Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com.